and welcome back to another episode of the SarahCast, Conversations in Social-Emotional Learning. It really feels like finally more people are not just talking about, but thinking about and acting on SEL this school year. We're all living through a lot. Students, our families, and educators need this work more than ever. It's exciting to see educational leaders thinking more critically about SEL and moving faster to adopt thoughtful practices, not just for students, but for the adults in their lives too. But of course, with more focus comes more criticism, and for good reason. Over the past 13 years, I've learned a lot about how SEL can be implemented poorly and the detrimental impact that can have on students. Social-emotional learning is not a disciplinary system. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's definitely not about fitting students into boxes or teaching them a predetermined set of behaviors. These kinds of assumptions really come into focus when it comes to SEL assessments. That's a phrase that can easily make educators hesitate. Assessment, as in grading? In K-12 education today, assessments have become incredibly high stakes and powerful levers of inequity. But assessment, clear, targeted feedback about growth in specific skills or domains, is critical for teaching and learning. It's how we know what our students know and don't yet know. It's how we know how we can best support them. In today's episode, I speak with my good friend, Dr. Clark McCown, the founder and president of Excel Labs and associate professor of behavioral sciences at Rush University Medical Center. Full disclosure, Clark is an advisor for Move This World. Clark is a nationally recognized leader in the field of SEL assessment who is regularly sought out for his expertise. He sits on the steering committee of the SEL Providers Council with CASEL and was a member of the steering committee of the Practical Social and Emotional Competence Assessment Workgroup. We dig into the hesitation around SEL assessment, equity, and the implications of adult social-emotional learning. I love this conversation because it provides some incredibly useful insights into the research and science of social-emotional learning design, along with tangible, actionable tips for educational leaders. Today, I am here with Dr. Clark McCown, the founder and president of Excel Labs and associate professor of behavioral sciences at Rush University Medical Center. Thank you so much, Clark, for joining me for this conversation. You are a friend, a mentor to me and to move this world. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey within education. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This is a lot of fun, and I I love working with you guys and collaborating because we have so many shared interests. Uh, So uh, how did I get started? You know, when I was in college, um, I did a lot of work um, with kids in the New Haven schools, mentoring and teaching and tutoring. And I just always loved um, trying to bridge the gap between adults and kids because it turns out kids, especially young children, uh, don't see the world exactly the same way as adults do. Or maybe I should flip it. Adults don't see the world exactly the same way as kids do, right? I would prefer to see the world how my three-year-old sees it for sure, especially right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My three-year-old was uh, not very happy much of the time. So I don't know that I would have wanted that at that point. But I I hear what you're saying. There is this (laughs) kind of delight to things. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I, it's just been always a thread. Like, I taught for a couple of years after college, and that kind of like bridging the gap to students to help them come along uh, was a big deal. And then I got into psychology and um, became a child clinical psychologist. And all the way through grad school, the thing I kind of loved most about the practice of clinical psych was uh, was assessment, because assessment um, is really all about trying to figure out what's going on in that little person. Uh, in the clinical world, the, the, the question is like, what's getting in the way that um, is making it difficult for this small person to participate in school and family and community. Uh, but, but I was also interested in just understanding like normative development. How do kids at different ages understand uh, their world, particularly in the social world? Um, and I, I got involved in, uh, my dissertation was about when do children start to understand that people in the world hold beliefs or stereotypes about other people based on their group membership. In other words, when do kids start to understand that uh, that people can be prejudiced or uh, discriminate against others? Because, and that took, like, how do you actually ask a kid that question so that you get a meaningful answer? You can't just give them a survey or sit down and say, hey, kid, do you know what discrimination is? It just isn't going to give you the answer. So finding ways to really ask a question so that kids give you a a meaningful reflection of how they see things has always just been like something that's fascinated me. And uh, and then it got me into like, um, you know, trying to understand better ways to uh, to measure children's social and emotional competencies. And that's where, uh, that's where I landed here. Cool. Well, I'm so excited for this discussion to dig into some of those topics that you mentioned. Before we dive into our conversation, we always begin with some kind of centering exercise, an opportunity for us to acknowledge the chaos leading up to whatever, mm-hmm. wherever we are in this conversation so that we can be more grounded and present. For each other. So I'm going to ask you to just kind of play with me, Clark, for a moment. And um, imagine that you are a weather reporter and you are reporting on the weather. Uh And in this case, we are reporting on how we are feeling in this moment as if we are describing the weather. So for, for all of us, this is an opportunity to pause and to reflect, how are we feeling right now? Mm-hmm. And what might that look and sound like if we were to describe it as weather people? So I'll go first, since this might I, sound a little abstract. I love it. Um, I've already got my weather in mind. Oh, perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, Clark, in New York City, it is a swirling Uh, whirling torrential downpour. The wind is moving quite quickly up the streets and everyone should be careful and stay indoors because it's very windy. It's, there's a lot of rain. It's coming down very hard. You should not go out without your umbrella and your jacket and your rain boots because it is quite the storm today in New York city. And and you, Clark. Wow. Okay. All right. That that. <laughs> and to you in Chicago. Helpful. All right. So here in in Evanston, just outside Chicago, <laughs> it is uh, it's cloudy, uh, but at the moment there's some sunshine breaking through. In fact, shining on this spot that I happen to be standing on, uh, and there's a really good chance of sunshine uh, by the end of the day. Nice. 
Thank you for for engaging in that. Um, that's a fun opportunity for us to explore how we're feeling through a non-traditional lens. I love it. Um, so tell us, Clark, you how did you come to the social emotional learning space specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I, I'm, um, I used to do clinical work uh, at the children's center that I ran. And um, my colleagues and I did a lot of uh, sort of in-depth assessments. So parents would come to us when they were concerned about their child's um, academics, behavior, emotion, social connections. Uh, most of the kids who came to the clinic, regardless of the specific challenge they faced, um, had difficulty with friends. They had no friends or they had a hard time connecting with peers or they were actively uh, rejected by their peers. And whereas with a child who came to us who didn't know how to read, we had wonderful assessment tools to figure out what the barrier was that could help us, you know, recommend a course of uh, remediation that was likely to be effective. I felt and we felt like if a child had social difficulty, um, we didn't really have the same kinds of tools to understand what was getting in the way. So we started on a path of kind of integrating in a mishmashy kind of way um, assessment tools into our clinical practice to see if we could get a better handle on the barriers for kids. And we looked at some of those chart data and, uh, it, you know, it wasn't the cleanest data in the world, but we had some preliminary evidence that actually you could learn something above and beyond just having a teacher fill out a questionnaire by assessing kids directly. And then we started to uh, go out into the schools to further validate this concept and just worked with general ed students, kids without challenges. And our education partners started to say, you know, the kinds of things that you guys want to assess are the kinds of things that we're trying to teach kids. And Illinois, my state, uh, had just adopted SEL standards, which say what social emotional competencies kids should know and be able to demonstrate at different grade levels. So they said, would you please actually make these assessments for everybody instead of just for kids with problems? And, and what so, year was this? What year was this, Clark? This was uh, um, probably 2007, 2008, something like that. So pretty early on yeah. in the adoption of both social emotional standards and assessment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, and what do we, you, what yeah, do you right. think, um, what do you think it was about the state of Illinois? You talk about, you know, developing these standards or developing this assessment and it happening kind of at the same time as the state of Illinois saying, mm-hmm. these are our social emotional standards. It's pretty uh, early in the continuum of yeah. state standard adoption for this work. What do you think it was, what was going on in Illinois? Castle, I think, was what was going on. The Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning is in Chicago. And um, they had been doing some advocacy work at the state level. Uh, but I, I think that they really had started with Illinois because that was their home state. Sure. Uh, and and I think their um, the uh, governor's office at the time was uh, kind of mental health oriented and so th- so it, it sort of added up to Illinois being the first state to, to try this work. And then I think they're um, largely because of Castle's advocacy, but also because of just things happening in the world. Um, the kind of concern about student social and emotional wellness just took off. Sure. So then they said, we have these standards. You said we have this assessment. Mm-hmm. 
then what happened? Then, well, then we went after uh, funding to really build uh, a, a scalable assessment. So we we got we've gotten at this point five grants from the Institute Institute of Education Sciences to develop and field test and validate um, web-based assessments of student social emotional competence. Um, so we we just set about building a better mousetrap, um, and our assessments are they're they're not surveys where kids answer questions like i'm good at making friends they're not teacher rating like self-reported yeah which is fine but i think there are some real limitations to that um, mm-hmm. we wanted to um, make something more analogous to an achievement test but with social emotional content where kids mm-hmm. have to demonstrate their competence by solving challenging tasks and and then we just we've been on that path ever since we just got a grant to build a middle school assessment. So we've got an early elementary. Awesome. Congratulations. Elementary, thank you. Building a middle school. And who knows, maybe someday we'll do high school, too. So for many educators who have either just begun implementing social emotional learning programs or curricula or have been doing so for a long time, that connection between implementation, program and assessment is uh-huh. one um, that is, uh, difficult to make the connection to why, why is assessment so important and how do you view the relationship between social emotional learning assessment and program? Well, in the simplest terms, I, I feel like, um, the field of SEL has gotten further with program development than with assessment development, which is great. But we just don't have, we haven't had until recently ways to know where students are starting. And like Mm -hmm. if if you were at school district and you bought a math curriculum, you'd fully expect there to be assessment that went along with that curriculum because you'd want to know where students' math skills are starting so you know what to teach to whom at what point. And so then you can measure growth in those competencies over time. The same thing is true of SEL. Everybody thinks about them as being so fuzzy and vague that they're unmeasurable or that mm-hmm. it's impossible to, um, you know, tie assessment to instruction. But uh, our whole theory, uh, and I think it's borne out in action, is that you can assess these competencies with the same rigor that you assess academic competencies. And they're the same ones that you want to teach, by the way. So the mm-hmm. assessment guide instruction and, and help you know whether it's having the impact you want. So why do you think the assessment field is so far behind the program field in terms of SEL? development uh I, honest to god i don't know but i it, it, it's it's one of the, it's kind of a study in a culture in a way you know you've got um adjacent to the social and emotional learning field is a related field positive mm-hmm. behavior interventions and supports or pbis mm-hmm. and so pbis is kind of sel-ish in that it um it's designed to set behavioral expectations at a school and district level and support teachers and educators in developing systems to reinforce those positive behaviors. The the reason I'm mentioning is because PBIS from the very beginning, because of their orientation and behaviorism, integrated assessment into the practice of PBIS. So if you're a PBIS school, you measure implementation and you have data teams that sit down and talk about, are we doing what we said we were going to do? You measure outcomes and you sit down with your data teams and see, are we having the impact we want to have? And it's part of the culture and uh, origin story of PBIS. Mm-hmm. SEL, on the other hand, just didn't have that origin story. I think people wanted to say, yeah, assessment's fine, but let's help kids. 
and that's the right impulse. But I think now we're saying, well, now that it's going to scale, we need to have ways to know whether we're doing it well and whether we're having the impact we want. And so assessment is kind of catching up to, to intervention at this point. Do you think part of it is that there has been such controversy around SEL assessment? I've heard critics say things like um, social emotional learning assessments place unfair weight on students, adds to a high stakes testing environment that um, we are promoting certain traits or character qualities mm -hmm. that are personal um, what would you say to those critics of SEL assessment? You know, I, I think you're right that that's part of the reason that there's been a lag in competence assessment specifically. I mean, a lot of those critics would say, well, measure the climate and adult practices because uh, that's where the action is. And I always say to them, well, yes, and measure student competence because you want to know whether students are growing in response to instruction. If you're only measuring climate and, uh, and adult practice, you can't know that. I think there, there's a grain of truth to what uh, those critics say. There's, uh, there's the risk that uh, social-emotional competence assessment could be used in a way that's not productive for students or overtly harmful. But I think that what's missing in that, uh, that critique is um, what is lost when you don't assess student competence? You know, how, how is teaching actually harmed when you don't know what to teach to whom at what point? And how is the field harmed when you don't know whether it's having the impact you want it to have? So, yes, on the one hand, the crit critics are looking at all the harms that could happen, for which there's not a lot of evidence that it does happen. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, uh, they're not uh, acknowledging the harm that could happen to teaching and learning and student outcomes by not actually measuring those outcomes. I do think there's a way to, to uh, do assessment that minimizes risk and maximizes benefit, and that is to be super clear ahead of time about what the what decisions will and won't be made from assessment data, uh, because mm -hmm. that's where the potential harm is. If the data are going to be used to say, that's a bad kid, and that kid needs to go to a lower quality classroom because they need pure behavior management. Well, that's not that's potentially harmful and not good. But if the decision that's going to be made is what am I, the teacher, going to teach to my classroom of kids to build on the strengths that I've identified and address the needs, the risk of harm seems to me to be much lower but it requires being intentional about those uh, assessment goals and decisions you're going to make and are not going to make and enforcing those uh, decision spaces. So that sounds like something that district leaders should be doing as they kind of prepare for SEL assessment. What should district leaders be looking for in an SEL assessment once they've, um, you know, of course, made that clear? Like this is the purpose uh -huh. of assessment. Well, I think that um, if the purpose that that uh, the intention of a district is to measure SEL to um, kind of inform teaching and learning and measure student progress, then what they should look for is an assessment that's designed to measure the competencies that they intend to teach. Uh, and uh, because you could, you know, there are lots of um, sort of off the shelf assessments that are available that are easy to implement. But if they're measuring A, B, and C, and you're teaching D, E, and F, 
the assessment isn't going to be very good at informing instruction. And by the way, if kids do, don't do improve on the assessment, maybe it's because you weren't teaching A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. So aligning the content of the assessment to the content of the curriculum, I think, is sort of a number one goal. And most every district that at least we speak to who are interested in assessing SEL already have adopted uh, an evidence-based SEL program like Move This World and are interested in using assessment to um, enhance the efficacy of the program in their district. Do you typically see districts start with an evidence-based program and then layer on assessment, or do you see districts begin with assessment and understanding the baseline and then layering on program or curricula? My So I would say this is just a shoot from the hip estimate, but 80% of the folks who approach us uh, have already adopted or are about to adopt a specific program, and then okay. they're looking for assessment to add to it. Uh, but there are a, a smaller percentage, 20 in this case or so, who say, mm-hmm. no, we're starting with um, starting to think about SEL. We really just want to get a handle on where our students are, and then we're going to have a discussion about what we're going to do to support um, the development of those competencies. So walk us through a typical school year in terms of a cycle of assessment and instruction. What does that look like if a district has a a social emotional learning curricula that they're implementing and then assessment? How do you see those pieces functioning? You know, I so almost everybody we partner with uh, assesses early in the school year uh, to get a benchmark. And Mm -hmm. then uh, we have kind of really comprehensive interactive reports that summarize performance at the district, school, grade level within school, classroom, and student levels. So we encourage district folks to look at the reports that are relevant to them, school folks to look at the reports relevant to them. They they sit down and review their data once they've done that first benchmark, and then uh, look at um, the the scope and sequence of their program and say, which of the, which lessons are uh, focused on the competencies we most want to emphasize and how might we approach the use of our, uh, of our SEL curriculum to address the needs we've identified. Then they implement that plan and maybe they bring in supplemental resources too and make decisions about how to integrate the reinforcement of competencies that are high priority throughout the day execute the plan, and then after a period of instruction, reassess to see what kinds of progress students have made. Most of our partners um, assess in the fall and in the spring. Uh, Some also do an interim uh, benchmark just to see how things are going. And by the way, this year, a lot of our partners, because of all that's happening, um, are uh, are doing home assessment. And I've started to look at the data, and it it looks really good. It looks just as high quality as school-based assessment. It's really hard to do that with teacher rating scales or other kinds of assessments. So it's uh, got a flexibility that uh, other kinds of assessments don't have. What is What does home-based assessment look like? How does that work? Well, so um, the, the key thing, so, you know, as long as you have an internet connection and a device with the browser, you can complete our assessments. The thing about homes is that they can be noisy and disruptive and mm-hmm. well-meaning parents can be looking over their kid's shoulder and saying, actually, don't you mean this? Uh, mm. In response to a question, so mm. so what we do is we uh, we encourage our district partners to do two things. One is to communicate to parents what the goal, the purpose of the assessment is, because as soon as parents know, this is not a high stakes thing. It's not about like diagnosing your child. It's really about just trying to be the best teachers we can be. That lowers right. the, the the kind of uh, pressure, and then we let them know, you know. Um, 
Tell parents uh, these are the conditions that really need to be in place to get a good read. Quiet place if possible, uh, uninterrupted, private, don't help your student. And then the third thing is when it's possible, um, we ask our partners to try to do the assessment during online instruction so that a teacher can be uh, just watching kids as they take the assessment, just to kind of confirm that the conditions of testing are amenable to a valid testing result. And most of our partners are able to do that. And I, I feel like that that's the biggest um, insurance policy to, to get valid results. Yeah. So I've heard, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I've heard folks in the research community say that the 2021 school year, well, and really also the 1920 school year is just a wash when it comes to research that wow. the 1920 school year having, you know, sent students home for the most part in March and not returning that it was such an outlier that we really can't use it as part of a data set and, and that we all have so much pressure on us at this time, especially mm -hmm. educators and schools. And so to ask something else of schools during the pandemic yeah. with regard to assessment is too much. What are your thoughts on the 1920 school year and uh, whether or not there's anything that we can measure from that year and the 2021 school year with all of the, it, it just being such an unusual school year. I know. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, 1920 um, testing in the spring was just off. Everybody um, understandably said, we got to just focus on keeping kids healthy and delivering what uh, educational experiences we can online while we're making it up as we go along. So that's uh, completely understandable. 2021 has similar pressures. I do. My impression is that um, school districts that are going back are finding it uh, to be hard, but not impossible. There's increasing evidence that COVID transmission is not happening very often within schools, that it's happening outside of schools. But rates are going up, so whether the schools that are open are going to stay open is an open question. I think the question about assessment, you know, it's it, districts have to make a decision about what's what's most important. And I completely respect those districts who say, you know what, this year we're going to hold off. On the other hand, if you can get with relatively low cost in terms of both money and time, a good read on where students are starting in math in reading and social emotional. Um, and that can make your instruction, whether it's online, hybrid, or in person, more effective. Um, it's a good thing to do. And a lot of our district partners have decided that's a good thing to do. I get a little concerned that, you know, the focus on social emotional wellness right now is almost exclusively focused on children's mental health and um, the burden of symptoms kids are carrying back to school with them. That is super important. Don't get me wrong. We need to help kids who are struggling. But it's to the exclusion of a focus on the long game. And the long game is we want to equip our kids with all the skills, academic and otherwise, they need to be successful people in the world. And so to the extent that it's possible to keep an eye on that long game, Assessing and addressing student social emotional competence is uh, is a vote for the future. Do you think that that is really because we are being so reactive instead of proactive and just trying to stay above water? And it's really hard to think about something like proactive, foundational 
social emotional curricula for everyone in assessment? Do you think it's just a result of the times that we're in? Yeah. Or do you think that it's a, okay. I totally do. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence that um, symptoms of anxiety and depression are up for kids and adults uh, because mm-hmm. these are incredibly difficult times. I was just thinking about this uh, before we got on this, which is, you know, like there's so much uncertainty, you know, and, and what is what is anxiety if not the emotion that comes with uncertainty? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's a legitimate and very real um, need to focus on mental health issues and supporting students' mental health. I, I don't, I don't question that whatsoever. Um, but I, I just hope that we're able also to maintain a focus on not just removing barriers that kids are coming to school with, but building up the competencies they need over the long haul to be resilient human beings and be successful mm-hmm. participants in society. It's just really hard to keep those two mindsets in your head at the same time. Yeah. Supporting and dealing with the emergency and keeping an eye on the long haul. I don't think humans are well equipped to do think in both those ways at the same time. I was going to say, do you think they're almost two separate tracks and two different things? Like, how do I respond to what's happening right now and also plan for yes, the future? I totally do. I really do. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you think about mental health um, and that's your definition of social and emotional wellness, um, it has such implications for assessment and adult practice, right? For, for mental health, assessment is about screening to identify kids at risk, diagnosing kids with, with um, clinically significant challenges, and then um, identifying a treatment or intervention plan designed to remove those barriers. That's a good thing to do. That's one track, though. If you think social-emotional wellness is the competencies kids need to develop, the ability to understand others' emotions and, and uh, perspectives, to solve social problems, to self-regulate, all of these things that we want kids to be able to do, that's about um, uh, benchmarking to see where kids have started teaching the competencies, the affirmative competencies you want kids to develop and measuring growth over time. Of course, the more you have these competencies, the more, the less likely you are to have mental health problems on the road. So they're not totally mm-hmm. unrelated, but the implications mm-hmm. for what we do to assess and address kids' needs really, really different. And I think both need to happen, not the one yeah. or the other. I'm concerned that it's this to the exclusion of this right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think in an ideal scenario in a district, those areas are managed by two different teams? I don't know, honestly. I think that's an excellent question. Um, I think ideally there's coordination so that mm-hmm. um, it's a continuum of services and care that kids are, are getting. And I think one of the things the SEL field hasn't quite worked out is, you know, it's great for kind of universal tier one programming, everybody gets the curriculum, it's lifting all boats, which is super important. How does SEL support the kids who need a little bit of extra help, the tier two or tier three kids? I think that there's a lot of productive discussion going on about that, but we haven't worked it out. And that has implications for who in the district and school level are having those discussions. Ideally, it's one team coordinating their efforts. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, Something you just said about, you know, SEL as it relates to tier two and tier three and the kids who need extra SEL support had me thinking about a phone call that you and I had at the end of May following the 
killing of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the relationship between SEL and equity and diversity and inclusion. I know you've done a lot of research around prejudice reduction interventions, Mm -hmm. and this may be a bigger conversation than we have time for today, but broadly, how can social emotional learning help reduce prejudice in schools? Well, I think the the field of social emotional learning is engaging in the discussion about how it can contribute to equity in really constructive ways right now. Um, for example, Castle just uh, issued, I think it was last week, um, a revised set of kind of definitions of the five competencies. And if you go to the website and take a look at how they're defining the competencies, they've integrated an explicit focus on on equity into uh, those, those competency definitions. For example, um, self-awareness, I believe, includes like self-awareness of your own prejudices and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't change them if you don't acknowledge that you might have them and work to actually do something about it. So I think this integration of an equity focus with uh, the social emotional competencies is going to be a, a real uh, boon to the field and to education and society. I think that the other thing, though, I would say is that um, there have been um, – effective strategies developed both to reduce prejudice and to increase uh, academic equity that are old. You know, they've been around since at least the 80s and 90s, which is kind of when my uh, consciousness of the psychological literature began, but they have origins in older literature. And so the question I had, and I blogged about this recently, is like, why is it that those strategies, like true cooperative learning, actually makes kids who are different from one another in any way like each other better in general? And, you know, when those cooperative learning groups are heterogeneous in terms of achievement, it tends to lift all boats. So kids who are mm-hmm. lower achieving rise and the kids who are high achieving continue to rise. So why aren't we doing those things that we know work? Um, I think that that's not an SEL question necessarily, but it's a question for the field and the world. If we know that these are things that promote equity, why aren't we shouting it from the rooftops and actually doing those things? As what, why do you think? Why do you think, Clark? Um, I think one of the ways that... Um, so let me just tell an anecdote. Okay. When I, so I was a grad student at UC Berkeley and Berkeley's a pretty darn liberal place, not just the university, but the, the uh, area. And so I was doing this work on um, children's understanding of stereotypes and how stereotypes uh, can insidiously influence kids' achievement. And um, I, I, I got involved then in understanding like what prejudice reduction interventions actually work and could uh, promote equity. And so I went, I thought, okay, we've got stuff that works. And so I went around to these uh, school leaders and said, hey, you know, there are these wonderful strategies that would be really easy to deploy and they're going to really help with equity and reduce prejudice. And, and people were, were, all of them to a person were super liberal, super you know, um, pro-equity, uh, anti-racist, but they were so lukewarm about those concepts. Mm-hmm. And a, a part, maybe it was just because I'm just like an enthusiastic little grad student and uh, I'm not persuasive, but part of me thinks it's just kind of like one of the 
ways that um, inequity perpetuates itself is by a lack of movement around mm-hmm. things that could work. And I think these are well-intentioned, wonderful people, but the lack of motivation, where does it come from? I don't really know, but I just felt a, a sort of lack of energy around it. So I think there has to be political will, personal commitment and action. And uh, why those things happen or don't happen is is uh, a kind of witch's brew that's beyond my comprehension. But it sounds like the social emotional learning competency of self-awareness really being the first lever for any of this action to take place. I mean, if we're not self-aware about our own privilege and our own prejudice, Uh either as educators, students, parents, policymakers, then there's then everything else that comes after it's kind of irrelevant. So I think that's true. I think that's really true. I think it's true um, within the, the the conversation about equity and even within the conversation about SEL. It's really hard to teach something that you um, haven't mastered yourself. So mm-hmm. um, social emotional competencies, adults vary in their skills and their yeah. comfort and their willingness. Um, so it's all uh, there's a lot to be said for. Uh, promoting adult uh, competencies around. Okay. I was just yeah. gonna. I was just gonna ask you that. You know, mm-hmm. we talk so much about the importance of adult practice and adult mm-hmm. social emotional development. How do you see the relationship between adult practice and strengthening adult social emotional skills and social emotional learning as a vehicle for prejudice reduction? There's How a are lot. They related? They're related in all kinds of ways. I think. I mean, I and I. I don't. I don't really know if I can answer that in a in a real and meaningful way because there's so much to it. But one of the things I think is actually doable that could increase adults' capacity both to engage effectively in SEL instruction and use kinds of equity-focused educational practice that we know work uh, is really uh, starts in schools of education. You know, schools of education are not they're increasingly, you know, focused on SEL and teaching teachers, uh, incoming teachers, what SEL is, how to assess it, how to address it. But it's just beginning. And I, I feel as though more work at the induction phase of a teacher's career around what is SEL? How can I weave it through the day? Why is it beneficial educationally? What can I do as an adult to promote these things? And what are some practices that are equity focused as well? it begins the conversation. And if you're doing it as you're learning to be a teacher, it kind of forces the issue of, I've got to look at myself to figure out how to do this. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Like asking yeah. people later on in their careers when they've kind of established a way of doing things to say, look at your biases. Um, some right. people are like, hey, man, I'm working my butt off here and doing really good work. Why are you asking me to do this mm-hmm. um, for, for good or for ill? Uh, so I just think like getting getting into the the flow of teacher education earlier on, I think would really increase the odds that um, mm-hmm. both SEL and equity focused practices were effective and used uh, widely. Absolutely. So many districts are now prioritizing systemic SEL or or mm-hmm. beginning to consider how to implement systemic SEL in their communities. What advice would you have for a district that? just getting started or beginning to think about how to do this work? 
Um, I would say, like, make sure that, uh, I mean, Castle is a great resource, first of all, for um, kind of doing, laying the groundwork for systemic SEL. So I'd really encourage people to go to their district guide, um, got a lot of great resources, and they can actually advise districts who are interested in this. So, um, but I would say, um, uh, go at the fastest pace you can, but no faster. Number one, make sure that um, a, a leadership's job uh, largely in systemic SEL efforts is um, to make sure that all the constituencies that are touched by SEL um, are part of the process of decision making around what uh, what sorts of um, uh, programs are adopted, curricular adapt, adopted practices are used. So making sure everybody's part of the conversation and, and moving along with leadership is important. I see top-down initiatives not working very well, um, but leadership needs to frame uh, the, the uh, initiatives. And, you know, I would say I, I feel that um, for the field of SEL to maintain quality and impact does require some form of assessment to go along with the initiative because we want to be evidence-based. So picking programs that we know work, we want to be evidence-informed. So collecting data to know what to do to help specific students or groups of students and see if they're prog progressing is important too. So I would encourage people to be considering both the programmatic initiatives and the kind of data systems are going to integrate as part of their conversation about systemic SDL. In terms of data systems, what are some best practices when it comes to SEL assessments? Well, I, so I've written about this more recently. I, I, you know, we've done a lot of work on social emotional competence assessments of course i think those are important but in my view the the kind of dream uh, assessment package for a district is um, some way to cost effectively measure implementation how often are teachers using a curriculum how's it going how are kids feeling about that curriculum okay so is it happening and how well is it happening number two is competence where are kids starting how can you use those data about kids' competence to inform your use of the program and measure progress over time? And number three, climate. I think most uh, most SEL um, programs are not only going to benefit student competence development, but should benefit the community as a whole. So the simply and cost-effectively measuring students' perceptions of safety, belonging, instructional support, things that we know are important to their development, uh, can also provide good data that educators can use to make the climate better and to see improvement in the climate over time. So implementation, competence, climate, all together benchmark and measure change over time and use those data to inform practice and continuously modify things so that things are moving in the right direction. That's my dream. That's a great dream. I want to be a part of that. <laughs> okay. <Deal. laughs> um, okay, real quickly as we wrap up, Clark, as someone who is assessing social emotional competencies, how do you stay socially and emotionally and mentally well? Well, that does presume that I stay socially and emotionally and mentally well. <laughs> and I think I'm doing okay, all things considered. And uh I, you know, okay, so let me just admit, I've tried to do mindfulness because I know it's really beneficial. And when I try to do mindfulness for its own sake, I just am a failure. I just don't have enough um, 
of the Buddha in me. But I've realized that the things I go to to kind of center myself and be well induce a state of mindfulness. So I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like a crazy puzzler. I was just spending tons of time at jigsaw puzzles. Mm-hmm. Just the weather got good. I've been spending a ton of time on my bicycle. And mm-hmm. I love being on my bike. And when I can, which is not that often, I love fishing. So what do puzzles, mm-hmm. bikes, and fishing have in common? Well, all of them, mm-hmm. when I'm doing those things, all I'm focused on is the present moment without judgment, which That's is, right. you know, what John Kabat-Zinn and all those mindfulness people say is mindfulness. So to me, I need, I need a task to induce a state of mindfulness, but I know my go-to tasks that will induce that mindfulness to me. And I always feel afterwards like better because I'm just mm-hmm. right here. So mm-hmm. those, are, those are the things I kind of have as my go-tos. What, what about you? I'm curious. Um, I have a couple things that without which I could not, I would not be the kind of mother that I want to be to my daughters or the kind of leader I need to be from this world or wife to Rob. Um, one is exercise movement. I have to work out every morning. I would say pre pandemic, like five times a week, six times a week right now, I kind of feel like I have to move my body and like sweat every day. Uh-huh. Um, so running, biking, et cetera, yoga, and then dance class. That's kind of when you talked about the activity that brings you a sense of, I was almost thinking of like a flow state. Uh-huh. Um, dance for me is my meditative, artistic, spiritual home. And that's been hard over YouTube. It's not the same yeah. as, you know, Alvin Ailey Dance Center. Uh-huh. And then I have a creative writing morning meditation called the morning pages. If you're familiar at, uh-huh. at all with the artist way, that's really helpful for me in clearing my internal cachet. And you can write about anything like you know, it's sunny outside or I'm tired or, you know, this thing's happening at work and it's just about excavating it so that once you release it, you have more creative energy and output to take on the day. Uh And then this has been harder since becoming a mom, but an evening meditation, even if it's just 10 minutes, I treasure that. So I think that's so important. Um, but thanks for asking. Last question, Clark, what is a book or resource that you would recommend all educators take a look at? Um, well, I mean, uh, shameless plug, I wrote a book about social and emotional competence assessment for educators. So if you're interested in assessing competence, it's kind of a good primer on, on that stuff. But there's also a book, um, it's right over there. I forget the, the name of it, but, uh, it's actually a, a book somebody turned me on to that basically summarizes in very accessible language all the things in education that we know work, you know, and actually work uh, really, really well. Like the effect sizes are substantial. Um, and uh, if I can uh, excavate the title of that book, I'll let you know later. Sounds good. We can include it in the show notes if you want to okay. email email it over. <laughs> I appreciate um, it. <laughs> Well, Clark, this has been such a robust discussion. Thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise. We're going to go ahead and close with um, an experiential moment, how we center and close all of these discussions, allowing us to be more present for them and then moving on to whatever comes next. So if you're able to uh, ground yourself or put your feet 
um, flat on the ground beneath you. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead um, and take one deep breath together as we focus in on something that we are grateful for right now. I know at the top of this conversation, when I described the weather, for me, it was a swirling, windy, rainy storm. And that's kind of like what my emotional state is at the moment. And yours also was a little cloudy. So let's acknowledge that weather that we brought into this conversation mm-hmm. and identify what we're grateful for as we take one breath together. So breath in and out. And Clark, what are you grateful for in a word or phrase? In this my, my family, number one. And by the way, as you were talking, I swear to God, the sun just broke through outside. <laughs> oh man, that makes me happy. How about you? I'm glad to hear that. Um, I am grateful for like-minded people who are committed to solving important problems. Thanks, Clark. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into the Sarah cast today. I loved spending this time with you. Before you go, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and breathe out. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find all of our episodes on movethisworld.com. The SarahCast, Conversations in Social-Emotional Learning, is produced by the Move This World Audio Network. Move This World supports social-emotional learning for students, their families, and their school communities through evidence-based curricula rooted in creative expression and movement. You can find additional resources to support SEL in your district, school, classroom, or home on our website, movethisworld.com. I'll see you next time.